MediaMind, a new podcast from the TRT World Research Center, unpacks some of the most popular yet misunderstood news events of the month, examining them and connecting them to the defining political, social, and intellectual order of the 21st century. In each episode, academics, journalists, activists, and opinion leaders will unravel political narratives surrounding issues ranging from global politics and media controversies to criminal justice and corporate crime. This episode of Media Mind unpacks a different perspective on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Our guest is Miko Pellet, a well-known Israeli peace activist and author of the acclaimed book, The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Miko offers his takes on peace and justice in Palestine, advocating for the creation of one democratic state with equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians. Hello, everyone. It is my real pleasure to uh, welcome with us today uh, Miko Pellet. Uh, Miko Pellet, as many of you may know, is an author, uh, a writer, a speaker, and human rights activist living in the United States. Uh, he is considered by many to be one of the clearest voices uh, calling for justice in Palestine and uh, the creation of a single democracy with equal rights in all of historic Palestine. Uh, Miko is also a contributor to several online publications, and he's the author of a blog and uh, produces also the Miko Pellet podcast, of which uh, all he dedicated his uh, opinions to advocating uh, for the creation of one democratic state with equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians. Miko, welcome to our show, Media Mind. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so, Miko, um, we are really pleased to have you, and uh, we would like to know more about yourself. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, your upbringing, etc.? Uh, yes, of course. I, um, I am originally from, I was born in Jerusalem, and my family was a very Zionist family. I had people in my family who were held important position in the establishment of the State of Israel, in the establishment of the Israeli military. I have a grandfather who signed the Israeli Declaration of Independence, and my father, as the title of my book uh, suggests, the general son, uh, was a general in the Israeli army. He participated in the 1948 ethnic cleansing of Palestine as an officer, and then at the end of which the State of Israel was established, as we know, and then in 1967, he was a general. He was one of the members of the Israeli High Command. That was the background of my upbringing, and then about 20, a little over 20 years ago, I began to become active on the Palestinian issue. I began to engage with Palestinians to get a better understanding of where things stand and why things are the way they are. And that's the, the subtitle of my book, uh, The General Sun is the Journey of Israeli in Palestine. So what it's like as an Israeli to suddenly discover Palestine and to take that journey, because as an Israeli, you live in a sphere that is completely segregated. There are no Palestinians in the sphere where Israelis exist. And so to take that journey from this very um, familiar sphere 
into this unfamiliar part of the country, which sometimes is really only across the street. I mean, it's a small country, so the distances are very large. And that began, and that was a journey that is still going on, which is my journey realizing and discovering Palestine. And then that also framed my uh, political perspective about Palestine and what needs to happen in Palestine. Well, that's uh, really awesome. I mean, you uh, brought us immediately to the fore. And I, I really uh, advise our audience to uh, read your book, uh, the general sun it was published in 2012 but i think there are many editions and also uh, we are about to have also a turkish version uh, that is about to be um, published if i'm not mistaken in uh, maybe late september this month so the book really had excellent reviews uh, i remember having seen uh, jim miles for example of foreign policy journal writing in his review that there are many powerful books written on the topic of palestine israel but few if any are as masterfully written as Miko Pellet's The General Son. So I would like to know, I mean, in this book, you expressed views that go against the mainstream, you know, Israeli ideology, literature, popular culture, about the state's policies. So what motivated you to write this book? Well, about, uh, t actually, 10 years ago, uh, the book came out originally, and you're right, there were several editions, quite a few translations. The Turkish translation, like you said, is about to be published, and also we're putting out a 10th anniversary special edition because it's been 10 years uh, as well. Um, but the motivation to write it was actually from friends who encouraged me and convinced me that there's a story here that's unique because my journey into Palestine led me to conclusions that, uh, like you said, are, uh, some will consider unusual. And the experience, considering particularly the experiences that I've had um, as an Israeli growing up. And at some point, uh, it came to a place where I said, okay, I'll sit down and I'll start writing. And then I sat down and started writing. And, um, and then we had the book eventually. After a couple of years, we had the book. But the motivation was really people who said, look, there's a story here that... Um, is, needs to be told and uh, would benefit the, benefit the cause, you know, benefit the struggle. Excellent. Uh, so one of the most compelling stories was about your father. I think uh, General Mati Pellet, who is a very well-known general in the army, and you mentioned earlier that some of, uh, even your grandfather was instrumental, you know, in the, making the state of Israel. And also, uh, your father played an important role in the wars that, that came later. But then he changed many of his views about the Israeli-Palestine conflict. What uh, was the trigger for his change? He, I, I believe he wanted to establish some peace talks. He wanted to negotiate with Yasser Arafat even before later discussions. So what can you tell us about this shift, if we can say so? Well, that's a really interesting question because he never thought that he made a shift. He always said there was no shift. His interests were the well-being of the state of Israel, which he helped to establish with his own bare hands, you know, by, by being a military man, and uh, for which he felt he dedicated his life. So he believed in Zionism completely, and he believed that the most important thing for the state of Israel was to be able to live among its neighbors in peace. Now, he came to the, he, like I said, he was one of the, he was a member of the Israeli high command, military high command in 1967. And immediately after the 1967 war, which, you know, as you know, lasted five, six days, uh, he stood up and he said, now we finally have an opportunity to make peace with the Palestinians because now it's just us confronting them. There are no other countries in between here, so we can directly negotiate with them. 
And he believed that the Palestinians would agree to a peaceful resolution of the question of Palestine by what we know today is the two-state solution where the, the lion's share of Palestine will remain Israel. In other words, the, the conquests that were made in 1948 will remain Israel, albeit with a pretty large Palestinian minority. And the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem will be, Palestinian state will, will be founded, will be created in, those, in that space. And he said this literally as the guns were still smoking. In other words, the last, the very first meeting of the Israeli high command, he stood up and he suggested this. And he was taken aside by uh, Itzhak Rabin, who was the chief of staff, who was his boss, and said, look, this is not the time to talk about getting back territories. We finally have all of the land of Israel in our control. Why the world would we want, we're strong, why would we want to concede? And he said, well, if we don't concede, we will end up in a reality where you have a single state without the Jewish majority, which is really the, the key issue for people who believe in the Jewish state. And then it'll either be a never-ending military struggle or the end of the Jewish state. Either way, it will no longer be the what they call the Jewish democracy. And then from that point on, until he passed away in 1994, he, uh, he pursued this you know, two-state solution. He believed in the Oslo process at first. He thought that the Oslo process was good. And then he, just before he passed away, there were a couple of interviews with him before he died. And he said, Rabin does not want peace. Israel does not want peace. The Oslo Accords are not a peace accord. They only serve to continue the occupation. And so he saw that. He saw, he saw the flaws in the Oslo Accords. But his aim was to preserve the Jewish state. He believed in the right of Jewish people to have a state in Palestine. It's not that that the peace of the Palestinians was the way to do it. Yeah, I can see that. And um, I mean, coming to you, uh, you were also trained as a, as an elite officer. I believe also that you are very good at martial arts, and you have been doing a lot of training that in that perspective. But then, you know, you just uh, you didn't last long within within Sahal, the Israeli army, uh, because you couldn't fit in that mindset. And then you left. Of course, it needs a lot of courage to take a, such a stance. So can you tell us more about this period of your life? Well, I mean, I was never an officer. I was a soldier. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was when it was my turn to, to go into the IDF, you know, it's mandatory military service. Like a lot of young Israelis, I was very excited. I thought, you know, this is my chance to do my part and I will volunteer and be a, a special forces and join the special forces and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of that when you're young. You think it's patriotism, but it's actually vanity because it's the image of the hero. It's the image of the soldier with a, you know, with a machine gun and all that that appeals to you as a young man more than any patriotism. And, um, and what I learned really in the first year of my service was that none of what the Israeli military was doing had anything to do with security. Not even it had anything to do with safety. It had to do with oppression, destruction, and a complete lack of respect for the lives the humanity, the dignity of Palestinians. And then uh, later on during my service, Israel invaded Lebanon. Thankfully, I was not called to, to enter Lebanon, but I, I, would have, I would have refused. Even my father at that point, as a retired general, called on Israelis to refuse to serve in Lebanon to serve in the, in the uh, invasion of Lebanon and so on. Uh, but that was a big transformation for me, going from this young patriot, or at least thinking I was a patriot, and then realizing that uh, this whole military is really uh, a cover-up for something that is cruel and oppressive towards, towards other people, towards the Palestinians. But then, I, but then again, I wasn't really involved. I finished my service and, and you know, I went on with my life. I didn't really get involved in the politics and activism until much later. 
we'll come back to that. Uh, but before that, I mean, we can see, I mean, you mentioned the Oslo process. And since the 1990s, there have been several peace initiatives and agreements. However, the situation for Palestinians has worsened amidst the rise of settler colonialism and the far-right religious parties in Israel. Uh, in your opinion, why is peace still elusive in the Israel-Palestine conflict? Well, because the idea of Israel is, the, the idea of an Israel in Palestine contradicts the notion of peace. You cannot have a settler colonial state that its basic ideology, most fundamental ideology, is that the entire country belongs to Jewish people. That's really the number one founding principle of the state of Israel and of Zionism. The land of Israel, which is they call Palestine the land of Israel, belongs to the Jewish people. The Arabs are just invaders. And it is our right to, as they say, quote unquote, return uh, as Jewish people to our ancient homeland. So this is built on this entire mythology that all Jewish people around the world today are the descendants of the ancient Hebrews, which of course is not true. And that even though, and that throughout the last 2000 years, when Jews were mostly absent from the Holy Land, there was really nothing there. And then early in the 20th century, the Jews began to come back. And then, of course, they made the desert bloom and they established this wonderful state and so on and so forth. But that contravenes the very notion, the very idea contradicts the very idea of the possibility of peace, because there cannot be peace with, a, with, a, with a, first of all, with settler colonialism. Uh, there cannot be peace with an ideology which is inherently racist and violent, which is Zionism. And like Hassan Kanafani recognized early in 1970 already, you know, the great Palestinian writer and uh, fighter, Hassan Kanafani, when he was asked about peace with Israelis, he said, you don't really mean peace, you mean capitulation. And the entire Oslo process and the entire notion of peace is nothing but an attempt to bring the Palestinians to capitulate and surrender. And there is, and I don't think it's it's failing. I think Israelis are. I think it's succeeding because the Israel such as such enormous military power and such enormous support from countries around the world that it is able to engage in these horrific crimes against the Palestinians, and get away with pretending that it's some kind of a democracy that brought progress to Palestine. It's neither a democracy nor did it bring progress to Palestine. So that's why what we are seeing over the last, you know, since this notion of peace uh, came about, uh, and it's, I believe it's, it's a very cynical use of the word peace, because it's got nothing to do with peace, is, is not creating the so-called peace that people are imagining. Well, I'm, I'm glad you give us a lot to absorb in this discussion, especially the euphemism part about peace and how... You know, different parties are seeing peace in, in, in from different prisms. I, I would like to pick your brain on something uh, from a media point of view. I mean, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict is one of the conflicts the most plagued by disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, a lot of propaganda out there. So what is the role of the media, as you can see, somebody who has been observing this history and uh, all the things that are unfolding, the dynamics of the conflict? What is the role of the media in perpetuating hatred and suspicion or even trying to impose a certain uh, way of seeing peace defined like uh, as capitulation or surrender? Uh, why are voices for peace like yours seldom heard in, in the media? 
Again, that's an excellent question. And I think the answer is that if we look at the larger picture, uh, going back 100 years, the Zionist movement and the different Zionist organizations around the world, particularly in Britain and in the United States, and today really pretty much almost everywhere around the world, have uh, they understand how, the, the, how important the role of media is. In, in this issue. You know, I was in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago and they were telling me how representatives from the Israeli embassy come and sit in editorial meetings of the main newspapers to make sure that the issue of Palestine is is uh, described the way Israel wants it to be. They come all the way from New Delhi because Israel doesn't have an actual embassy in Sri Lanka, in, in, in Colombo. So they come all the way from New Delhi to sit in on editorial meetings in Sri Lanka. You know, it just gives you an idea of just how well they understand the importance of media. And they have enormous influence through a lot of work that they've done. I mean, they've built relationships. They Israel has a great deal of, uh, as I'm sure you know, sells arms and helps with all kinds of, mostly arms, but technology and so forth. And this is true, of course, in the West, where Israel, uh, they have a great deal of influence in the media, as they do in local politics, as they do in national politics, because they understood that their for their narrative to work, for their narrative to be able to be, you know, pushed forward, they have to be with their hand on the pulse all the time. They cannot let go because if the truth comes out, then it's like a house of cards. Everything is going to collapse. Um, and so the sad thing is that the corporate media around the world, and again, this is not true only in the West, this is true in many other places, the corporate media around the world is quite happy to indulge uh, the Zionist authorities, the Israeli authorities, and to uh, stay away from telling uh, the Palestinian story as it should be told. And that's one of the reasons why um, it's so important whenever we do get a chance to get the word out so people will know uh, what is actually actually taking place, that Palestine is being ruled by an apartheid regime, and, and so on and so forth. Excellent. I think you put uh, your finger in the in the right place where the problem is. And I think uh, the role of the media is definitely uh, very important, and it's sometimes used and abused by uh, leadership in Israel and others you know, who call the shots in Israel to promote one uh, side of the story rather than the complete story. So tell me, what can be done to change uh, the media narrative? From your opinion, you have been doing a lot of grassroots work. You have been associated with different pro-peace movements. So what do you think can be done to change the narrative? Well, I think um, I think this is something that has to come from... It's like what we do to change the, the political atmosphere. There has to be a demand for honesty. There has to be a demand for truth. One example, and maybe the most glaring example today, is the assassination of Shirin Abakli, Palestinian, a well-known, well-respected veteran journalist who was a household name in Palestine, household name throughout the Arab world, really. She was assassinated in a in a way that is there. There can be no doubt whatsoever that not only was it was she killed by a sniper, that it was done intentionally, but that the order to kill her came from the highest levels of the chain of command. In other words, it had to be at least the Minister of Defense, if not the Prime Minister. You cannot, no soldier, no junior officer in his right mind would, would make a decision of that magnitude. She was a famous person, you know, and then very quickly it was shown beyond any doubt that this was an Israeli sniper, that it was an Israeli bullet. There were no clashes. There were no Palestinians firing. She clearly had a vest on that said, you know, she was identified without any question as Sharina Boakle, member of the press, and she was assassinated. You would expect that, you know, the press, the media all over the world would stand up and demand 
accountability. We would expect that. All journalists, you know, many journalists risk their lives. All journalists need to, should have stood up and stopped everything. Stop the presses until there's accountability. Nobody moves. Nobody talks about anything. Nobody lets Israel get away with anything until we find out exactly who gave the order and that person is held accountable and brought to justice. It's not happening. People have to demand it. If people want to see justice, if people want to see the truth reported, they have to demand it. They have to bang on the table. They have to go to the offices of the, of the, of the editorial departments of the newspapers and say, we need the true story. You cannot whitewash anymore. You cannot try to hide things with the Israeli narrative, with the Israeli story and give it legitimacy. The Israeli story has no legitimacy. It has to be exposed. It's up to us, I think, as consumers to demand that truth. And as long as we're happy with, uh, or people are happy enough with half-truths or no-truths, then the corporate media is happy to sell their, you know, to sell their news and make a profit. Yeah, absolutely. So let me take you to another point in your books and uh, sometimes in your talks. You often raise the one-state solution about a single democratic state for all and about uh, democratic rights for all, for Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, do you think this option has any chance at all? And what are the conditions for this solution to be considered at the highest level? So... Again, that's an excellent question. I think what people need to understand is that a single a single state over all of Palestine is not a futuristic idea. It's the reality. There is and there has been for a very long time a single state over all of Palestine. It's called the state of Israel. Within that state, we have different populations living under different laws, living even under different bureaucracies, albeit they're all governed still by the same government. They're governed by the same state. But they have different bureaucracies to deal with the Palestinians who are citizens of Israel in the north, different ones to deal with Israeli, Palestinian citizens of Israel in the south, in the Naqab, another bureaucracy for Jerusalem, another one for different parts of the West Bank, and so on and so forth in Gaza. But all of Palestine is a single state, period. So it's not a question of one state, two states. It's a question of one state democracy or one state apartheid. Many people feel that the reality today is perfectly acceptable, that an apartheid state that gives the minority Jewish population all the rights and all the privileges at the expense of Palestinians is fine. And you see that in the results of the Knesset, the elections every time Israel has elections. The vast majority, over 90% of the politicians that Israel votes for, believe in that. That is what they're, they're fine with this. And they pursue it and they continue to pursue it. They continue to build for Jews only. They continue to pass laws that... Um, give privilege to Jews and Israeli Jews and so on. Some of us disagree. Some of us do not believe that apartheid is right. Some of us oppose the violence. Some of us oppose racism. Well, those of us who, are, who do, you know, it's what's been called in the past the constituency of conscience, people who care, people who do care about uh, human rights, about justice and so forth, must stand up and demand the transforming of the apartheid regime in Palestine, which, by the way, was also established at the same time as the apartheid regime in South Africa, and that just just like the apartheid regime in South Africa fell, the apartheid regime in, in Palestine must fall and make room for a single democracy with one person, one vote, with the, not only recognizing the right, but creating the mechanisms for the Palestinian refugees to return and be paid reparations. This is the only other solution. So we either accept the reality or we demand to replace it with a, with a, with a, you know, with a free Palestine that is democratic. These are the only options. There is no third possibility here. So I think it's important for people to come to terms with that reality. 
Yeah, I like the way how you you portray it, and it's it's so clearly uh, defined. Of course, the reality is still here, and you know, as you described, there is a, a sense of apartheid, separation between Israelis and Palestinians, and and one of the ways that have been used to put pressure a little bit on Israel is the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, the BDS movement. To, to what extent do you think BDS has been uh, successful and how can it be even more successful to put pressure on the Israeli leadership? You know, people believe, think that BDS is, you know, if we stop buying avocados or oranges that are grown in Israel, then that's BDS. BDS means demanding sanctions, which I think today is the most crucial aspect. We must demand sanctions. There must be such severe sanctions against the state of Israel that not a single dollar can be transferred into an Israeli bank, that not a single item can be exported from Israel, that not a single uh, diplomatic mission is open uh, around the world, not not, not a single Israeli diplomatic mission is functioning. We need such severe sanctions against the state of Israel so that it ends its policies of apartheid and, and, and eventually collapses like what they did with South Africa. Boycotting, again, it's not just about the oranges or the avocados. Israeli teams should, Israel should be expelled from the Olympics. Israel should be expelled from the World Cup. Israeli teams should not be permitted to participate in any academic, cultural, sporting, political, diplomatic arenas. It should be treated as a pariah, which is what it is. In the last Olympics, we saw a very courageous young Algerian athlete, a judo practitioner, who risked his entire career and refused to participate in in a match against the Israeli team. Now, we all know, we can only imagine how hard he must have worked to get to the Olympics. Not any athlete makes it to the Olympics. It's an extremely, extremely difficult thing to be able to do. So he must have been very good. And at the moment of truth, he stood up for principle. In other words, he showed two things, I believe. He showed that he's a true martial artist because he has principle and he's a true athlete because he put principle above, you know, getting a medal. The thing is, he should not have been put in that position. The Olympic Committee should not have allowed the Israeli teams to participate, period. He should not have put his his, his career on the line, this young man. He was very courageous and he is now banned from participating in in judo for the rest of his life. His career is over for for taking the step. But it's not fair to put this on him. And we've seen other cases where athletes refuse to to participate. They should not be on the athletes. I mean, God bless them and good for them for doing this. But it should be on the authorities. It should be on the associations, all the different athletic and sporting associations to ban Israel so the athletes don't have to be placed in this position where they put their entire career at risk in order to stand up for what is right for their principles. That is what I believe uh, you know, is that that's what I believe we should be we should be working on. That's what we should be be, be demanding. Well, on the other hand, it seems uh, the Israeli authorities they have a different uh, strategy. Actually, they're trying to circumvent all these uh, kind of boycotts and all those kind of sanctions or potential sanctions by actually having many diplomatic breakthroughs thanks to the so-called Abrahamic Accords. They uh, normalize relations with many Arab states and. They put agreements in place according to which uh, Israel does not even need to settle the conflict with Palestinians to have better relations with uh, Arab countries. Where does this leave the peace process, in your opinion? You know, like I said earlier, Israel knows that it cannot rest. Zionist organizations around the world and the state of Israel know that they must pursue their agenda relentlessly because if there is even the smallest crack in their wall, then that will be the beginning of the end. Um, And if we're talking about the Abrahamic Accords, I think we should encourage and strengthen those states that have not signed on to the Abrahamic Accord. 
Algeria, like Kuwait, like, you know, a few others, Lebanon, the one of the countries that have not signed on to the Abrahamic Accord. And I'm sure, I am absolutely certain they're under a lot of pressure because the benefits that come with, I mean, the Abrahamic Accord, the, 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 the states that did sign those accords, you know, did so out of, out of interest, naturally. And they're getting a lot of access. They're giving, getting a lot of uh, benefits as a result of this, which the other countries who are standing firm and refusing to be part of it are not getting. Well, they're not going to be able to do that forever. We need the people of conscience, countries around the world who support the cause of free Palestine, need to encourage and strengthen the countries that are standing firm and refusing to join the Abrahamic Accord. And we need to be there and we need to keep keep up the pressure, um, if you will, and keep encouraging them so that they do not succumb to, again, like I said, must be enormous pressure to sign these accords. Uh, I believe that all of our effort needs to go into that uh, to prevent more countries from joining this this uh, horrific this horrific initiative called the Abrahamic Accord. Well, let me delve on the pro-peace movements and activists like your good self um, in Israel. I mean, they still appear to be on the minority side. Uh, however, we start to hear in more voices and they start gaining more visibility. So in your opinion, how long would it take for pro-peace movements and activists to, uh, to enter the mainstream realm of politics and, and, and have a sizable force? It will never happen. <laughs> it will never happen. There is no room for them. There is no room for this voice within the political sphere in Israel. This can only happen once Zionism collapses. You know, when apartheid fell in South Africa, suddenly all the white people claimed that they actually really loved Nelson Mandela, that they were pro-peace their whole entire life, right? That they're not racist. Once Israeli society is on its knees, there is room for a real change, for a real democratic, free state to be established in Palestine. Then we will see change in Israeli uh, discourse. We will see change in the Israeli political um, map. But this is not possible right now. The voices you're talking about are the fringe of the fringe of the fringe. They are treated as pariahs within Israeli society and within Israeli politics. They have no voice whatsoever. They have zero political power. And when they do speak out, they are, like I said, they are treated like traitors. So there's no room for that voice within the discourse in Israeli politics or even in Israeli society or Israeli media for that matter. Yeah, t- tell us a little bit. I mean, I thank you for your honesty. I really appreciate you really give us a, a good overview about politic- the politics inside Israel. But tell us about the media. How is the Israeli media considering this dynamics of peace? Are they interested or they are just pushing militaristic point of view. You know, when you watch Israeli news, Israel has a whole bunch, you know, lots of TV stations and newspapers and everything. Um, there's not a, there's there's one, maybe from time to time, a voice of dissent. There's Gideon Levy and Amir Haas, two, two journalists in an ocean of journalists. Uh, and they're rarely, rarely viewed, rarely heard, rarely seen. Rarely. The Israeli media is ha, allows no room for dissent. It is channel after channel after channel, newspaper after newspaper after newspaper, following the state line, following the official line of the government. When Israel, I mean, I was just there for a month. I just got back a few days ago. Israel is bombing Gaza. The only conversation is whether politically this was the right move because Israel now has a new prime minister or, you know, how hard they hit the enemy. I mean, everything is very, very supportive of everything the government does. Anybody who even, nobody even, nobody even suggests, nobody even suggests 
a uh, another perspective, a perspective that might allow that there's another issue here, that there are the Palestinian people here, that there's a nation here that's being pressed, that there are two million people that live in this horrific humanitarian disaster called the Gaza Strip, and it's only you know 30 minutes from Tel Aviv, which is you know a bustling, happy city. And that never comes up. That does not exist within the discourse, and it does not exist in the Israeli media at all. Well, that's uh, really uh, surprising, but yeah, I, I, I take your word for it. I'm, I'm sure it's, this is the reality on the ground. Unfortunately, we don't know much about uh, Israeli politics or Israeli media, so it's good that you give us this overview. Well, from your uh, point of view, is there any potential hope for, for peace moving forward? You know, any hope, any potential will depend on us, on those of us who care. If we demand For example, in the United States, you know, politicians, starting with the president, are very proud to announce that they're Zionists. That would be the same as announcing that you are a racist and a white supremacist. I mean, there's no difference. Here you have it, when, or anti-Semite. You can, if you, you know, if you stood up and you announced, I am an anti-Semite, you know, that's the same thing. To announce I'm a Zionist is the same kind of racism, but they get away with it. The only way that's going to change is if people on the ground, not only in the United States, but in other countries, demand that the politicians, demand that political leaders denounce Israel reject Zionism and reject Israel. In other words, we can't expect our, that any government, whether it's elected or not elected, uh, will change its course just because they woke up uh, in a good mood one day or just because it's the right thing to do, God forbid. They will only change through pressure and it is incumbent upon us, people who care, people who, can, who have the influence to demand that the governments impose sanctions on the state of Israel, denounce the state of Israel, downgrade or completely close down diplomatic missions. If we want to see an end to the killing and the brutality and the oppression of Palestinians, which goes on across the board in every city, in every town throughout all of Palestine, from the very north in the Galilee, from Haifa and Akka and Jerusalem and yeah, every city, in the Naqab in the south, of course, Gaza and the West Bank. If we want to see this end, we must demand that all of our governments end trade with Israel and relations with Israel at no matter what the cost is. We have to do it. And this, by the way, is how apartheid in South Africa fell. People demanded and the governments had no choice. The other governments around the world were perfectly happy to do business with, with South Africa. South Africa was a very influential and rich country, apartheid South Africa. But the world stood up and demanded. And of course, the South Africans fought very hard. And Palestinians are fighting very hard, but they are fighting against a monster of a war machine. And so we have to stand up. If we any chance there is for change, for justice, for peace in Palestine demands on how hard we work and how fast we work. It's a very, very simple equation. If we sit around and wait, nothing will change. In fact, that's not true. Things will continue to get worse and worse for Palestinians. If we want to see it end, then we need to stand up and we need to fight and we need to act, all of us. Well, uh, Miko, I think you gave us a lot of things to digest and uh, it was really, really good to have you with us uh, today. You gave us a lot of insights. Thank you for those. And uh, we hope to have another uh, interview down the line um, in the coming months or years. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Tarek. It's a pleasure. Well, that is all for this episode of Media Mind, brought to you by the TRT World Research Center. This podcast was produced by researcher Sabri Ege. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Please subscribe to our channel on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to leave us a review and rating. This is Media Mind. Thank you.